Welcome to Energy Matters, where we explore alternative health in the Pioneer Valley. I'm your host, Caroline Rutterman, and I'm a Reiki professional and intuitive in Northampton, Massachusetts. For the past nine years, I've been teaching people how to use their intuition and helping them reduce stress and anxiety. Together, we'll talk with other practitioners and learn how they bring health and healing to the Pioneer Valley. Let's do this. Hey, welcome, welcome everyone. You are listening to Energy Matters and I am your host, Caroline Rutterman. And we are chatting today with David Stuckey, who is a doctor of osteopathy. So uh, welcome, David. Hello, Carolyn. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here. Of course. So David, tell us a little bit about who you are and, and what you do in the Pioneer Valley. Well, I am an osteopathic physician, uh, a DO, and I um, finished residency a couple of years ago and wanted to come back to Massachusetts to be with my sweetheart, uh, to get married, and to open a private practice of osteopathic manual treatment and functional medicine. That's great. So tell us a little bit about um, what what was your residency like? Was that similar to how a traditional medical doctor, an MD, goes through a residency? It, it was. It was a, a four-year experience at a hospital in Miami, Florida. Um, it was specifically an osteopathic residency, meaning only um, graduates from osteopathic medical schools could uh, attend that residency. But it was, a, it was a combination residency that focused on a core family medicine board eligibility training and included a one-year fellowship specific for the osteopathic uh, manual skills wrapped into it. So when, you're, when you say manual skills, what, is, what does that mean? Yeah, that's a great question. It is um, basically the unique feature of osteopathy, what really helps to set us apart from our MD colleagues. Um, it's, it's basically osteopathy itself is uh, a definitively American practice of medicine that originated on the, the American frontier in the 19th century. And um, basically it, it came about from the idea that medicine as it was practiced at that time really seemed to be doing a lot more harm than good. There were, there were a lot of practices that were um, you know, as we would call them now, heroic, meaning that it really subjected the patient to a lot of stress and strain and, and undue injury, in fact, just because the, the scientific method, you know, really being evidence-based in terms of what treatments were, were recommended and, and, and used in patients was not really followed uh, so rigorously at that time. Hmm. The individual, uh, Andrew Taylor Still, who developed osteopathy, uh, as he would say, discovered it. He didn't really create it. He just sort of came to realize that this was a truth that was available. He just was farsighted enough to recognize it. Um, suggested that structure and function are correlated at every level, down to the level of, I don't think he would have said this word at that time, but down to the level of the atom and all the way up to the level of the whole human being and, and every stage in between. So if we work with the structure both diagnostically and therapeutically or, or by treatment, we can improve the function of, of the individual. So osteopathic treatment, this, this manual approach 
really places a heavy emphasis on cultivating a refined sense of palpatory skills. So using our hands to appreciate what may be a little bit off in uh, our patients who come to us asking for this assistance. And at the same time, using those palpatory skills to work with the anatomy in a, in a direct, sometimes very overt way, but also sometimes uh, quite subtle fashion to improve the function of the individual as a result. Now, when you're talking about palpating, are you palpating inside the abdomen? Are you feeling for the structure of the skeleton? Are you, are you like how are what are you what are you feeling for, and, and where where on the body are you um, are you creating contact? That's a that's another great question. The reality is is pretty much anywhere on the body. Um, I have chosen to focus my work. Uh, as a cranial osteopath. So I, I definitely do a lot of work at the head. Um, but, but the reality is, is that these skills are applicable anywhere in the body. Um, so certainly palpating the abdomen and, and appreciating how the viscera are managing uh, whatever the circumstances may be for that individual, but also the extremities and, and, and paying attention to bony alignments, paying attention to uh, qualities of the soft tissues, um, and also at the subtle level, uh, which is really the territory of the uh, cranial osteopath, uh, paying attention to what we would call the primary respiratory mechanism, which is a very subtle expression of, of health or, or challenge, depending on how it's being expressed in the individual, um, that can be used, again, diagnostically and therapeutically. So are you... As a as a doctor of osteopathy, are you allowed to diagnose the same way the medical doctor would be allowed to use diagnosis? Okay, so Absolutely. that that could offer a lot of relief for people who are are dealing with endless kind of doctors' visits. Yeah, I, you know, it, it's it's interesting. I'm simultaneously a generalist, meaning that I, you know, you, you don't come to me because you need to have your heart transplanted. Um, but I'm also very much a specialist because I'm really using these skills of, of manual treatment that, that are the um, hallmark of osteopathy, in my opinion, uh, to, to really get to underlying issues that haven't been successfully addressed through other physicians and, and, and healthcare practitioners. So why is the training of um, a doctor of osteopathy different than a training of a medical doctor? Like where, where is that distinguishing piece? Like why would somebody choose to, to go to you versus to go to an MD? Um, so, you know, we really, as, as, as DOs, as doctors of osteopathy, receive training in medical school in absolutely everything that medical doctors, MDs, receive training in. We um, you know, do all of the basic gross anatomy, histology, pathology. We go through all of the organ systems. And that's really basically how we spend the first two years of medical school, as do our MD colleagues. We also, during those first two years, receive specific training in these manual skills of osteopathy. So cultivating that palpatory ability, the ability to diagnose, the ability to treat, um, even within the realm of osteopathic treatment, gosh, <clears throat> I'd be hard pressed to put an exact number on it, but I, I could easily think of at least 10 different modalities, if not 20, 
Um, it seems like too that it's almost like a fingerprint. People who are DOs and who are working in this way are just expressing their own impulse towards supporting their patient's well-being. So someone may come up with a new approach to doing so uh, next week, uh, and and that's a big part of you know maintaining my skill set as a, as a DO is is going to continuing medical education being exposed to these thoughts, ideas, and practices and, and bringing them back to, to benefit my patients. Mm. Uh, what was the, the last uh, education class that you took? Oh, it was, it was actually very interesting. I just went to uh, Colorado Springs, Colorado in March, and it was for the, uh, it's actually my favorite uh, um, conference each year in March. And it was right as uh, COVID-19 was really starting to emerge on the scene. Um, It was very minimally attended relative to past year's uh, examples. And the whole point of going to this conference is to lay down on the table and be treated by your colleague and then trade places and then you treat your colleague. And, oh, have and fun. It's just an experiential opportunity to, to deepen into this world. It's also, honestly, since there's not really that many other manually practicing DOs in the region, my big opportunity to go get treated myself. And everybody was physically distancing. There was no hands-on treatment at the tables. Oh, bummer. Very disappointing. Yeah. (laughs) It was what you needed to do at the time, but it was like, this is why I'm here. (laughs) That's right. I I understood, but I was still disappointed nonetheless. Yeah. Well, you know, we're allowed to have conflicting opinions and feelings about everything that's going on. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. So what does it look like when you get to lay down on a table and you have a colleague uh, doing manual work? on you? Well, um, it, it depends. If, if you're at a course like that, then it's a little bit, um, it's a little arbitrary because it's like, okay, we're going to be treating the knee. And honestly, you know, my knee or my partner's knee may not really require that in the moment, but for the sake of having the experience and, and you know, picking up these, these skills, what, what the instructor is hoping to impart, you, you do it. You go through the motions and usually there can be something really great about it. Um, my favorite, however, is sort of just kind of a free for all where you can, it's sort of like unstructured play. You can just have tables and there can be uh, other DOs sort of mingling around and, and you can treat and be treated according to what the individual, that the, the health that's wanting to be expressed in, in that person's system is asking for. And that's also part of developing those palpatory skills. It's almost um, a palpation of awareness, kind of tuning into what is looking to be best supported in any given moment. Now, do you find that as as a kind of cranial specialist, as as a DO, do you feel that people might come in for something that's head related and you're like, you know, I don't know what it is, but I really want to work on your abdomen. Do you ever have those moments where, you know, people are coming in and expressing a concern in one area and that your, um, your kind of explorations are, are pulling you in a different direction? Absolutely. All the time. Can't say enough how often that happens. And what that boils down to is another one of the core tenets of osteopathy, which is that the whole body is connected. The the body is a single unit of function. And where we are perceiving the problem, whether it's a headache or whether it's a pain in the low back or whether it's, you know, I just can't run as fast as I used to be able to for whatever reason, 
often enough, that boils down to an underlying issue elsewhere in the body, which the body in its inherent wisdom is seeking to manage and, and compensate for as best it can. And then that will show up as, as that headache, but really it's, it's an issue in the pelvis or as that low back pain, which is really an issue in the knee or the ankle, for example. Does that surprise people when they realize that that headache issue has to do with your, their hips or their pelvis or another part of their body? I, I think sometimes it does and, and sometimes it doesn't. I think people, you know, when, when the, this idea is suggested to people, I think people can really wrap their heads around it and be like, oh, yeah, now actually that you mention it, I have been having an issue with fill in the blank other part of the body. How, when you're, when you're helping somebody, how do you find, how do you find yourself navigating through the different systems and what needs to be healed? How do you have a a system that you work through? Is it more your kind of intuition pops through and you're like, you know, they're saying this, but I'm really feeling called to this sort of this area. Um, What's your, what's your, what's your system of you know, walk, walk me through what it's like to um, offer a, um, a treatment for another person. Sure. Yeah. So <clears throat> when a patient comes to me for the first time, it's definitely a longer visit. I, I schedule an hour and a half for my new patients who are coming in for osteopathic treatment. And that's just because I really want to spend um, a good amount of time listening to my patients, hearing what it is that's been problematic for them, what's prompting them to reach out to me to seek this assistance. I also allow enough time for a complete physical examination. Um, You know, so I'm a physician, so I I need to listen to people's hearts, lungs, you know, uh, appreciate what's going on with them neurologically, look in their ears and and mouth and so forth, just because I I, want to make sure that I'm not missing anything. I am also a self-identified completist, so that that fits in nicely with, with that approach to, to life in general. Wait, me. what's a self-identified completist? What does that mean? <laughs> it means that, you know, I can't just start watching a TV show in the middle. I have to go back and watch it from the very beginning. For example, I, I, I very much have um, a desire to be thorough, complete, and um, intentional about, about doing so with a lot of the things that I go about in my life. I would love to hear about... Um, why did you choose uh, osteopathy versus a traditional medical career or um, any number of things that, uh, that you know, what, what inspired you uh, with this work? Uh, yeah, you know, originally I had thought about perhaps becoming um, a counselor or social worker, something like that, um, for various reasons that plan didn't sort of materialize. And instead, I just, it was this very serendipitous moment. I said to myself, oh, now I can go become a massage therapist. So I moved to Boulder, Colorado and went to the Boulder College of Massage Therapy, which is no longer in existence, um, and started working as a massage therapist. A year after doing so, I took a biodynamic craniosacral therapy training, which was a two-year program uh, with two wonderful, amazing teachers, John and Anna Chitty in Boulder. And it was during that training that I I came to learn that osteopathy even existed. I had never even heard of it and um, thought to myself, wow, this is is really pretty cool. Um, Didn't think too much more about it at at that time, just continued to practice as a massage therapist and a craniosacral therapist. Started to think about 
something more for myself just because, you know, the massage work in particular is very physically demanding. And, and I just didn't see myself doing that for another 40 or 50 years of, of my work life. It's true. So, I really feel like the massage therapy, I, I can pair those folks to like construction workers. Yeah, like, yeah. You have to take and, care of your body to really do that work for a sustained period of time. Absolutely. Body mechanics as you go about that work are incredibly important. Um, and, and so I was was doing that, but, but again, just felt like I wanted something more. So I started to think about uh, becoming a naturopath perhaps, um, but as I considered that possibility more, I realized that I would very much be forsaking the, the cranial work, which I was starting to fall in love with in a, in a big, big way. And so thinking again about, you know, the, the source of that work said, well, what if I became an osteopath? Um, there was definitely a part of me that had some resistance to that idea because it really entails becoming a physician with a full scope of practice in this country, the ability to prescribe medications and you know, do surgeries if that's what you want to do. And, and I definitely had some resistance to that, but ultimately came around when I considered, you know, if I go for that and if I achieve that, then I will really have a wide open lane, a full scope of practice that I can use for the benefit of my patients. I'll be able to, to deepen in a very specialized way with this cranial work. And, um, you know, I can, I can use the, the skill set of functional medicine in a way similar to what I had envisioned for myself by becoming a naturopath, which I ultimately did not do. Do do other countries' uh, requirements for osteopathy, are they the similar uh, as the United States where you have to become a full physician to do the extension of this work? Or is it a little different in Europe or or Asia? How does, how does that work with, um, with other countries and their regulations? Yeah, that's a great question. It's actually very different. The United States kind of stands alone in its treatment of osteopathy. DOs in this country are given full rights and privileges of practice as a physician. Um, we're really, there might be a couple of other countries, but most countries, Canada, the United Kingdom, Australia, most countries in Europe, as far as I understand, you're really kind of like a chiropractor if you're a DO in those countries. Now that's has pluses and minuses to it. One of the, the 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 benefits of it, obviously, is that you know you aren't you don't have to focus on the pharmacology. You don't have to focus on you know writing those prescriptions, and you get to really deepen into those unique features of osteopathy that that really help it to stand out and apart from allopathic medicine. So. I have worked with and trained with uh, DOs from other countries, and their manual skills are usually just amazing, as opposed to, you know, most DOs in this country who see osteopathic training largely as a route to um, achieving a license to practice medicine. And, and really, most DOs forsake this manual skill set of osteopathy and are essentially MDs in disguise. And, and that's fine. Everybody gets to choose what works for each individual. Uh, for me, that was the defining feature of, of this career path. I, I absolutely wanted these uh, manual skills. I wanted that as part of my training. And I didn't even apply to any allopathic programs. It was only osteopathic college for me. Now, are you, are you doing um, chiropractic style adjustments along the spine, or is it, 
are the adjustments very different than that? Can you um, can you tell us a little bit about what those those manual um, that that manual work looks like? Yes, absolutely. That's a, a very common question that I get asked a lot by patients and, and prospective patients. <clears throat> now, I'm I'm not a chiropractor, and I'm sure you have any number of uh, listeners who who are or who who receive chiropractic work, and it's certainly very useful work. There are some ways in which the two disciplines can look similar. Um, again, not being a chiropractor, I can't really speak to the full scope of practice that that chiropractors use. As I understand it, you know, it, it's probably pretty similar to how manually practicing osteopaths practice, which is to say everybody kind of picks their own way of specializing in what they choose to emphasize in their approach to the practice. Osteopathy, as, as I mentioned earlier, encompasses any number of different modalities of treatment, one of which uh, DOs refer to as high-velocity, low-amplitude, or HVLA. And that's, I think, what a lot of people would think of if they think about chiropractic adjustment. It's that idea of sort of lining up the spine in a certain way, whether in the neck or the back or the, uh, the upper back or the low back, you know, getting right up to a barrier of sorts and then applying a very targeted, um, forceful thrust through this barrier at the actual joint, oftentimes followed by a pop or a feeling of great relief or, or something to that effect and, and great improvement from having applied that um, technique in that way. That's one, again, of many different approaches. Osteopathic modalities encompass that, which I, I often describe as being at the very overt mechanical end of the spectrum. Um, and it's, it's a continuum all the way down to the very subtle esoteric end of the spectrum, which is where I like to hang out with, with the cranial work. Um, there's also something known as balanced ligamentous tension, which is similar to cranial work, but not quite. There's muscle energy, there's strain counter strain. There's, um, I mean, again, there's, there's a lot of different modalities, which Dio's like to talk about when we get together at our conferences, but for the lay audience, it's, you know, it, it doesn't really apply so directly. Most people are really interested in just feeling better and, and getting through whatever it is that's been bothering them. Do you, do you still get to um, practice a lot of craniosacral therapy in your work now? Yeah, so that, it, you know, it, it becomes a little bit of an issue of semantics. Craniosacral is, I, I like to think of it as like what I used to practice, which is sort of this cranial work for a non-physician practitioner. DOs often refer to it as cranial osteopathy or osteopathy in the cranial field, if you're a wordy person like myself. <laughs> um, <clears throat> and, and in all honesty, there are different approaches even within that subset of the whole spectrum of osteopathic work. There's far more overt mechanical approaches to the cranial work. And, and cranial can be a little bit misleading too, because that can be applied anywhere in the body, not just at the head. Um, and there, there are very, very subtle, almost like, are you doing anything to me at all? Approaches to the cranial work, which when used judiciously can be very, very effective. Absolutely. Why or how does our structural alignment get out of whack? Like how, how do these things generally tend to happen, especially in the head? Because you're, um, that's, that's your specialty. So, you know, there can be any number of different causes to, and I think what you're talking about is sort of like grossly speaking, a, a misalignment, which is 
certainly one area that, that DOs who practice in this way would concern themselves with. The other sort of large category of um, interest for manually practicing osteopaths is how the quality of motion is being expressed in the body. So that's not necessarily that something is out of alignment per se, but just that there is some resistance, some quality of stuckness, some inability to fully express health as robustly as possible that is manifesting in the person that would benefit from some osteopathic intervention. So what, what is the, um, tell us a little bit about the range of uh, people that, that come to you. So I know that you kind of mentioned um, a reduced range of motion. Um, and uh, yeah, so tell us a little bit about uh, who, who would come see you. Okay. Yeah. It could be someone, you know, with, with an overt sort of somatic discomfort, complaint, headache, low back pain, shoulder pain, something like that. It could be someone who is really interested in, you know what, I just want to do everything I can for myself to promote my overall health and well-being. It could be someone who is particularly tuned in at a, at a quite subtle level to how their body is functioning. And they may not just exactly feel right, for lack of a better way of putting it. It might be someone who has had exposure to osteopathic treatment elsewhere with it with a different DO previously, and they just get that that is um, a modality that really works for them to support their well-being. Um, and then the other sort of big category of, of potential patients is uh, newborns, children. And, and the idea here is that there's so much change, so much growth anatomically that is happening. And it it doesn't always go off without a hitch. And sometimes a little bit of a course re direction or course correction can be very beneficial for um, the young child who's, who's going through those growth processes. Similarly, a, an infant who has just gone through the experience of birth has been subjected to extreme forces, particularly in the head, but, but throughout the entire body. Um, and, and the head itself, the cranium, is not fully developed at that age. And one would even say evolutionarily by design, because that is a... <laughs> an important structure that has to pass through a very narrow passageway. And sometimes consequences occur as a result of that. And then they're immediately uh, spanked and then feel gravity for the first time, whereas they're just in normally in a cozy little womb space. And yeah, it's welcome to the world. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. So, so babies are babies are a great um, a great little person that might need some some extra uh, some extra nourishment very early on. Absolutely, and there's there's actually really fabulous um, residency programs that have uh, osteopathic treatment for the neonatal and and you know mother baby unit as just a standard offering. Parents can of course decline uh, that additional treatment, but. Wow, what a fabulous offering to provide to these newborns right as they're coming into this existence. How have you seen uh, this work really impact newborn babies and and their moms? You know, that, that's a, a great question. I honestly did not have access to that type of practice when I was in residency. I have um, known about the value of this approach, and as a result, have taken my own child to to one of my teachers for regular osteopathic treatment um, 
it, it's a little bit hard when one is asked to work on one's family member or, or child or spouse. There's the potential for, you know, dual relationship issues and it can be somewhat challenging. So it, in, with the case of my son, my wife and I have just definitely chosen, we're going to go to this fabulous practitioner in the Berkshires is uh, very near and dear to my heart. And, um, you know, as needed, if, you know, under the current circumstances, if I had to, I would certainly treat my child, I would certainly treat my wife, but um, it, it's, it's an area of my practice that I've been fortunate to make use of on occasion, not as much as I would like to. It's a real joy to be able to treat kids because they treat so quickly. They're just, they're so much closer to the source. They're, they're full of health and wellness by and large. And as I said, they just sometimes need a little bit of a course correction. So treatments with young ones can be oftentimes, you know, five, 10 minutes is really all that's needed um, mm. in some cases. How long is a session usually with, um, I know you mentioned your first session uh, with a new client is about an hour and a half. How long does a, an average session with an existing client typically last? I usually schedule uh, follow-up appointments with my osteopathic patients for 30 minutes. And, you know, depending on what my day looks like and depending on how their system is responding to the treatment, I may go over five or 10 minutes. Um, I usually don't go under that 30 minutes. Those follow-up appointments are really mostly, hey, good to see you again. How have you been since you were last in? Okay, great. Let's go to the table. There, you know, there's a little bit of chit-chat, but it's mostly... Let's get to work here. Get to do the hands-on for a reason. Yeah. Do you get to practice on yourself? Can you do you like do you do a little tweaks here and there and some internal palpitations for for yourself when you're? Uh, I know you choose not to work on your on your wife and child, but um, do you ever like? Is that within the realm of of practice? That's such a great question. I work on myself all the time. I would probably even say too much. It, it's it's. Um, with, with osteopathic treatment, I mean, really my general approach with my patients is to say, you know what, when things are really acute and they're up, you know, once a week at most, that's really all you need. But most people do just fine, honestly, if they're sort of in a, just need a little bit of a boost every now and again, every two, three, four weeks even. Um, but sometimes I notice about myself that I'm treating myself every single day, which is, you know, a little indulgent, not necessarily needed, but it's, it's also a really great way for me to refine um, my sense of palpation because I'm perceiving from the outside at the same time as I'm perceiving from the inside. And, and I've really learned quite a lot from that practice. Yeah, oh, that's really, really interesting. I think that um, I often find that when I've experienced movement and energy within myself, I tend to focus on either the internal sensations or the external sensations. It's, it's very, uh, it definitely takes a, a very, uh, like interesting moment of perception to be able to register both. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, I think just like all of these, um, aspects of osteopathic practice that I'm describing, it is, it's a skill set that we all have the capacity to cultivate. It's just that not so many of us really end up doing so. Um, it's it's like cultivating the ability to tell where a particular wine came from and what year it was the grapes were grown. And I don't possess that skill set, but um, but you could. And, and some people will have perfect <laughs> pitch. You know, they can tell what key a, a, a song is in. That's amazing. I I'm, wish I had that ability, but. 
you were telling us a little bit about how uh, you work on yourself almost every day, which I think is awesome. <laughs> when you're when you're doing self work, what what do you observe? What do you experience? How do you notice the benefits? What does that feel like um, on your end? Yeah, um, I am paying attention, as I mentioned earlier, both to structural alignment, but also this subtle expression of motion that is present throughout the body um, at all times, but just kind of flies under the radar of most people's awareness. So slowing down, I usually find that um, lying down on my back in a comfortable, supported position, ideally on a surface that's not too soft, um, is is really the, the best way to go about this practice. And I honestly, I started back in Boulder when I first was going through my craniosacral therapy training. Um, it was a suggestion offered by my teachers at the time, and I kind of ignored it at first, but eventually came around to it and found it to be really instrumental in my development um, as, as a practitioner of this work. And the idea is really just lying there on my back and not trying to find that quality of motion or bring it to my awareness, but being receptive to its emergence within my awareness, which maybe doesn't sound like much of a distinction, but it's that that subtle sort of letting it come to the awareness quality rather than almost a, um, an overdriven sense of going out and finding it, needing to make it happen. And that there's something about that um, restful, patient receptivity that makes it more likely to be noticeable at the, at the outset. The more I have practiced this, the easier it has become to accomplish um, over the years. Um, and, and not really being a practitioner of, of anything like Tai Chi or Qigong, um, I, I suspect that maybe it's something similar going on with that, that there's a, a cultivation of an awareness of subtle energy movement that comes with diligent practice over time. So you you start by by laying on your bed in just a stillness or a shavasana, and you just let your mind slowly observe the stillness and the sensations underneath it. And and there's a quality specifically to this type of motion, which osteopaths refer to as primary respiratory motion, which feels a little bit like breathing. There's an inhalation, a swelling, uh, an external rotation of the arms and legs, and an exhalation, a sort of uh, descending down the spine accompanied by an internal rotation of the arms and legs. Um, that, again, that quality of motion is really important to DOs, may be somewhat hung up, say, in one arm or leg or in a certain part of the body, and that is diagnostic that that's useful information to someone who's practicing in this way is there an exercise that you can give people to practice either this or something similar to maybe not diagnose themselves because that's kind of reserved for people who have extensive medical training but something yeah. that they can do at home to um, to benefit their health in some way while we're social distancing so, uh, you know, that uh, would be one idea. It, it might require a, a significant amount of patience and, and diligence on the part of the practitioner. Um, another idea that I will recommend sometimes to some patients 
Um, it's not always going to be appropriate for everybody, depending upon what's going on um, in the spine. If you have any sort of um, slipped disc or bulging disc or ruptured disc in, in your spine, I, I would stay away from this. But to just do a, a yin yoga style standing forward bend, and you know, I find that I really have to set the timer on my phone and, and go for the goal of five minutes. Now, you may not be able to do that right out of the gate because that is a really long time when you are doing a standing forward bend, but it can be really phenomenal to notice how the body is organizing itself. Uh, there can be subtle rotations, particularly in the pelvis, but then extending out of the pelvis into the legs and, and then up from the pelvis into the, the low back and, and beyond it can be really amazing to start to tune into how has my body chosen to respond to the impacts of gravity and how I'm choosing to posture myself, whether that's in my car or at my desk or lying in my bed even. Um, and, and to allow for this reversal of gravity, at least for the upper half of the body, to start to exert a gentle influence of traction and, and lengthening through the spine over time. So that that's like a yin style. So a forward fold, you'd have a gentle bend in your knees and you just let your arms kind of flop wherever they land. That's right. And, and I usually say, you know, feet about hips width apart, not necessarily right uh, touching each other. Mm. I like that. So you were telling us a little bit earlier about how you had the early training as a massage therapist and work um, early training doing like craniosacral uh, therapy. Did you notice as you were training to become, um, you know, your, your fuller training uh, in osteopathy, did you notice that there was any, any conflict um, or maybe contrast, I should say, between the training of a massage therapist, craniosacral worker, um, and and doing more medical style training. Hmm. Um, I, I think it, you know it depends. The the program that I went to in Boulder for um, my massage therapy training was was pretty grounded in anatomy, physiology, basically, you know, the hard sciences. Oh, yeah. And, massage therapists was, know more about the body than yeah, <laughs> a lot yeah. of people. <laughs> so in that sense, I, I felt actually pretty well prepared for a lot of the, the gross anatomy coursework that I needed to do right at the outset of, of my medical school days. Um, that changed in pretty short order because really all we learned was muscles and bones and ligaments and so forth in, in massage therapy school. Um, and as a physician, you have to know all of the neurologic connections. You have to know all of the lymphatics. You have to know, I mean, the entire body, basically. So it was definitely more intense stepping up to medical school. But, I mean, that's what you want. You want a physician who has all that training, who, who is aware of all these important features, especially when that person is a manually practicing osteopath. This idea that structure and function interrelate at every level is foundational to the manual practice of osteopathy. And if you put your hands on your patient and you don't understand, and it's even, it's, it's, more, it's, it's really almost seeing in a certain sense what is beneath your point of contact on your patient, you're really at a disadvantage and, and you're not doing your patients any favors 
um, because you haven't done the work essentially of, of preparing yourself for being in that position. Hmm. So it's really more of a deep dive rather than uh, in a different type of worldview. Yeah. And, you know, I imagine that there are probably some massage therapy trainings out there that are perhaps a little bit more um, esoteric, energetic in their focus. And and that has its place too. Don't get me wrong. Um, That was not my experience in massage therapy school or in medical school. I would say I probably hang out with uh, a group of DOs collectively that, that are at the more esoteric end of the osteopathic spectrum, but it's firmly rooted in the physical reality of, of anatomy, physiology, how this body works physically in this reality. But there's sort of an openness to what else might be going on that we can't necessarily assess and, and, and codify in a randomized controlled double-blind clinical study. Absolutely. Yeah. And I feel like that's you know, I, I mean, is there a lot of studies around cranial sacral? Is there a lot of research around that work? Because I, I feel like, you know, uh, from what I understand about that that work itself is that there is a lot of, um, you know, different energetic pathways and loops and things like that that you're, that you're tuning into. Um, so I would imagine that those would have some some science behind the feeling out those rhythms. There, there definitely is research out there. There is more research that is being done all the time. It's unfortunately not um, a, a medium of study that really lends itself well to this classic Western, you know, rigorously scientific approach to following an evidence-based um, analysis of, of what works and what doesn't work. Um, different practitioners are necessarily going to have different skill sets. They are necessarily going to know what they are doing and how they are doing it. So it's just inherently impossible to have a double-blind controlled study. You can do, you know, sham contact and, and, and sham sort of techniques, so to speak, but the practitioner is still going to know that they're not doing what they've spent their professional life training to do. And it's possible that that could affect the outcome of those studies as a, as a result. So, you know, it's, it's difficult to say, I I think that there is more room in what we as a society allow for in terms of treatment options that we consider worthwhile than what can be validated by that, that sort of gold standard of, of, of Western science. Hmm. Thank you for sharing that. Do you have any last words of wisdom? We're coming up to the the top of the hour. Um, Do you have any last words of wisdom that you'd like to throw out into the universe? Well, you know, just sort of what we started out with, connection with those that we care about, that we love, that love us, and figuring out how we can continue to express ourselves in ways that are generative and supportive of our communities is just really coming up in such a big, big way for so many people right now. And I think it's a really fabulous opportunity for us to be able to to slow down a little bit with respect to work in a lot of cases and, and to deepen into these other ways in which we can channel our energies. I think it's really, you know, not to diminish the reality of what so many people throughout the world are going through right now. But for those of us who are fortunate enough not to be struggling mightily with that directly or, or in someone that is very near and dear to us, this is, this is um, 
it, it's a compelling opportunity. And, and I just hope that we're all able to, to, to dig into that in the ways that make sense for each of us. Hmm. And a quick question. Are you, are you still working? Are you doing any telemedicine or anything like that? Or are you taking um, mm-hmm. time off from, from seeing clients altogether during the, the COVID-19 that's a that's another great question. My practice has definitely slowed down. I am not seeing patients for osteopathic treatment. Um, I am very fortunate in that I have a, a second professional love, which is functional medicine, and that approach to the practice of medicine, healthcare, really does lend itself well to more of a remote consultation. Uh, type of practice. So it's been very interesting that what I spoke of just a second ago, I've really been able to delve into how can I best support my patients and my community at large right now. And, And one way that I've felt called to do so has been to provide some educational webinars to folks who might be interested to see them there completely free, um, and and to just go into particular topics. The, the past several have been on how to best prepare uh, one's immune system for COVID-19. And then um, after that, we talked about if you start to notice symptoms, you know, a little bit of a review of what those symptoms might be, what can you do to change that preparation to more specifically address um, an active uh, viral infectious process that may be setting it? And there's really, there's a lot that can be done. And, um, you know, we still have so much to learn about this pandemic and, and how this disease is, is working. There's a lot that we know already, but there's still a lot to be discovered about why certain individuals really seem to struggle with it and, and, and end up in, in very dire straits as a result of it. Uh, whereas other folks do just fine. Um, I, I definitely have my thoughts about that. And that's what I've uh, been been sharing with with those people who've been tuning in for my webinar so far. Cool. I can't wait to uh, to go back and listen. Are those still available online or are those live only? <clears throat> yeah, they, they are live. Um, there is a, a recording of each of them that's available. Um, if anybody is interested in those, they would just need to get in touch with my practice. Um, my website is pvosteo.com. Uh, short for Pioneer Valley Osteopathy. Um, but if you just Google my name, it, I should come right up. Uh, my practice should. So you can just give us yeah, a call. And we'd be happy to put you on the mailing list that we have uh, for future webinars. We've been doing them on Tuesdays in the middle of the day. Um, and if that doesn't work, I mean, if you're registered, you will get an automatic um, link to the recording emailed to you. So, so that makes it a little bit easier. That's great. And so um, if you're just tuning in, uh, we're chatting with David Stuckey, who's a doctor of osteopathy. And uh, the website is, uh, can you give us a shout out of your website one more time? Sure. P-V-Osteo, O-S-T-E-O, short for Pioneer Valley Osteopathy. Perfect. Uh, Well, thank you so much, uh, David, for coming on the show today and and sharing a little bit about what you do and, and why you love this work. Caroline, thank you so much for having me. This was a real um, joy and, and, and um, boy, just a lot of fun. Thank you so much.